And I see it time and time again, that things don't take time. They really take being willing to do what's uncomfortable. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Salo. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates. And Rudy just got done with a trip, not a trip, a hike, Mount Whitney, so. In a way, it was a trip, and I think it's very relevant, in fact, that you bring that up because that trip is mentioned on this show, and we bring it up in the fact of, like, focus, because when you're climbing Mount Whitney, you're basically dead to the world. You don't have service. You are cut off from society. And there's this discussion as to whether or not there should be built more cell towers on Mount Whitney. And the topic does come up. This episode where we're talking about time management, or I should say time hacking with life coach Vicki Louise. I will link her stuff in the show notes. She is really fantastic. We learned some really concrete tips about how to go about your day to get the most out of your day. And I really like this practical advice because part of what the show is about is what does it mean to live life well? And these tips about getting the most out of your time is really insightful. And I have to say, after this interview, I tried a couple of the things that she suggested. One of them was to give up the to-do list and to write down three things that would make the week successful and write down one thing that you've been putting off. And I tried it and it actually is a really good idea. One thing that I've tried to implement from this is to kind of stop with the psychotic amount of multitasking that I'm doing and to focus on on what I'm doing and try to cut out a lot of the noise. So, I mean, it's, it's a very helpful episode and it's very relevant for today because time is the number one resource that you can never reproduce. No matter how much money you have, you still can't reproduce time. Yeah. And should we mention the great irony of this episode? That the one time we are talking to somebody who's an expert about time hacking and the one time Mr. Rudy Salo wrote down the wrong time of when the interview started. <laughs> I did. I was I, I multi I multitasked and I failed. So it was actually, <laughs> you know, m- much like the first episode that I was on with you, you know, the, the infrastructure one. And, mm-hmm. And, you know, somebody had to leave the, Jacob had to leave to go put more money in the meter. So it was kind of funny when we we're talking about cars. This is perfect. I multitasked and I failed. Yeah. So it's just Vicky and me chatting away and then Rudy pops up around 20 minutes in and it's, but it's all a delight. Okay. Let's talk time hacking. I remember in my twenties kind of really thinking that I should Put myself into this box I went into corporate and I should follow this path that was laid out to me and in four years you'll get this promotion and in three years you'll get this one and you shouldn't leave a job without having been there for two years and, and I remember being like no 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 my 20s are a playground for me to get the most experience that I can so I actually figure out what I really want and I don't even know where that came from but I'm so grateful that I had that thought because I mean, I remember telling friends, I'm going to leave my job. And they were like, well, you can't because you've only been there a year and your resume isn't going to look right. And it's like, I'm so glad I didn't make decisions for my resume and I made decisions for myself. And I think that's what's given me like a wealth of experience in my career, in my relationships, in the locations that I've lived in. And it did seem like uncomfortable at the time to do that because it wasn't the messaging that I was getting everywhere else. Right. So I've studied philosophy, I mean, ever since I was an undergrad and I declared it right away. And I had to deal with the questions of, well, what are you going to do with that? I didn't have an answer. I think for a long time, I just said law school. And then I actually did apply to law school and graduate school at the same time. I got into law school 
and graduate school. And I realized that I had been saying law school to please everybody else so that everybody else felt comfortable that I was studying something that didn't seem to be practical. And it led me to traveling. I lived in Belgium for a while. When I lived in Belgium, because it's the center of the EU, it's easy to just pick up and go everywhere. And that's not the script of a young woman to be doing that, to just be traveling sometimes alone when you're supposed to be settling down, settling down. And I'm so glad that I listened to that instinct instead of what the script is that everybody was telling us. I think that's what causes midlife crises is that somebody wakes up one day in their 40s or 50s and they realize that they have been living for others instead of for themselves. Like how we're trained to as kids, which makes sense as kids, like you don't necessarily know everything. And so you do have these boundaries, but no one when you're 18 or 21 turns around to you and says, hey, guess what? Like you get to decide what you want to do now and you're going to be the one accountable for it. So we end up following this path that we decided when we were 13 because someone told us, oh, you're like for me, it was like, you're good at maths. You should be an accountant. I was like, okay, like I'll do that until I went and got work experience at Deloitte and was like, I am not doing that. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is not what I want to do. But it was scary at the time. I think it is more comfortable upfront to do what other people expect of you and then you pay the price later. Do you have a transformation story where somebody did come in one way and then you watched them grow? And what did that do for you? And what was the change in their life? There's lots of amazing clients. I'm very fortunate. The first one that came to mind, as you said it, and given what we're speaking about, is a client that came to me. She worked in TV production. She was like, I've got this 10-year plan in the future where I'm going to work in the meditation field. I'm going to open this space. I'm going to help people. I'm going to help people heal. And I said, out of curiosity, why is it a 10-year plan? She's like, well, because I need to make money first doing this. Or this is what I've always done. I'm already established in this industry. I'm known. And really, like, there's just a million good reasons to wait. And what was amazing, was she took another TV job while we were coaching and I didn't know at the time until it closed that they weren't paying her. They were going to pay her based on whatever the profit was. It was during COVID and the pandemic at the beginning and it was a pop-up outdoor production. When that happened and then they weren't successful, I said, are you ready to bet on yourself now? Because you were so willing to bet on them and not yourself. And within three months, not only did she have her practice up and a certification done, but she was making £5,000 a month. Like within three months, this 10 year plan that she would have wow. had for 10 years was done within three months. Now that wasn't what she was used to making in TV. So it wasn't like she'd replace her salary. That was within three months. Like it's kind of, this is, I mean, similar to my story and similar to so many of my clients, like the big lesson here is we are far more capable than our brains would have us believe. Oftentimes, unfortunately, what other people would have us believe because they just pass on their limitations to us. And I see it time and time again, that like things don't take time. They really take take being willing to do what's uncomfortable. Are there hangups that are common between women or between men? Like what is a common hangup that a woman has versus a man? So I mainly work with women. I have had male clients when I was doing one-to-one, but the thing that I remember noticing at the very start of my coaching with women was everything that goes wrong is their fault and their responsibility. And when things go right, they were just lucky. They were just in the right place at the right time. Someone else really helped them. So it's like taking that responsibility for the negative or for the fails and not taking responsibility for the success. And what that means is they aren't allowing themselves to build 
build that confidence, that self-trust that they can do what they set their mind to. So there'll be a lot of words like fluke or this just randomly happened or I don't know, it just happened to me versus one of the things that I help people do is discover like how did you create this so that you can repeat it. We all have these success blueprints and when we give responsibility or credit to other people or to time, that's obviously a big one since I help people with time, I'll say I was just in the right time at the right place. The timing was just right. It just took me five years. I'm like, if it didn't take time and you weren't in the right place at the right time, how did you actually create it? And then you can repeat it in a fraction of the time. That's so good. I'm just thinking about my own. It's making me think about my own stuff. I think that I've done that where I have not taken the credit or I've talked about luck or, or when something does go right, I'll say, I'm so blessed that so-and-so, you know, helped or did this or did that. Maybe we can do some myth busting or you can tell me if there's a truth here. Affirmations. How do they work? Do they work? What is a mistake? What is a good one? Yeah, well, I think sometimes they can work and sometimes they don't. And the difference really comes in whether you believe it or not. And I think one of the big things that would happen to me with so many of my clients is they'll come to me and they'll say, you know, I really want to change this belief. I really want to believe that I can. And I'm yelling at myself 20 times that I can. And this is another thing now that I'm failing at because it's working for everyone else and not me. And I'm like, you are not failing because you don't just believe a sentence that you yell at yourself 20 times or you listen to as you go to sleep. nothing's gone wrong. What I do with my clients instead of affirmations, and, and listen, there is a time for them. You can try it, but don't be disheartened if it doesn't work. Because what I find that works 100% of the time, and I'm confident to say that with my clients is instead of affirmations, what do you believe? So for example, if a client says, like, I don't know, I'm just a procrastinator. I'm not going to, they're not going to yell at themselves 20 times. I don't procrastinate. I don't procrastinate. What we're going to do instead is I'm going to say to them, can you think of an example where you don't procrastinate? What's something that you like always get done? And it might be as simple as brushing their teeth every day or taking a shower. But what's going to happen is they're starting to make their brain look for evidence that counters the story that they don't want to believe and actually fuels belief into the one that they do. And as you stack up the evidence, it's going to make that affirmation or that belief or that thought way stronger and easier to adopt. So yeah, build up a track record for what you want to believe. You already have examples of it in your life. Like it doesn't matter. Someone can say, I'm the most indecisive person. I'm like, you decided to coach with me. You decided to wear the clothes you're wearing today. You decided what you were going to eat. We always have evidence to support whatever we want to believe. It's just our brain by design is wired to cut out most of that information so it doesn't go into overwhelm and combust. So what we want to do is make our brain work a little bit to look for the evidence for what we want to believe on purpose. And that evidence finding I found with all of my clients is way more useful than just yelling something at themselves and hoping they believe it. That's great advice. How important is one's social circle or who they surround themselves with when they're working on themselves? Because I'm almost thinking when somebody is making some sort of a transition in their life, that it's not only their own thoughts, but the surroundings will look different. There's some people who will fade away and there's some people who will appear. So what are some things to pay attention to there in terms of environment and the company you keep? Yeah, I think you get to decide always around who you want to spend time with and also for what reason. Like, I don't think one friend has to fulfill the entire purpose of being your closest comrade and the person you enjoy baking with and the person that you, that knows everything about your past and the person that you speak to about your future and the person that you share your emotions with and the person you laugh with the most. 
So I think it's okay to think strategically around like, I want to make sure I have people in my life that I can speak to about my goals and my aspirations, and I'm going to make that happen. But that also doesn't mean that I don't have any time for the friends that don't have that. Like, I think it doesn't have to be as black as white as we think, because I see it all over Instagram, like who you spend time with is the most important. And it's true, but you are not just like a goal generator. You are not on this earth only to be productive. You might have a friend that is the most fun and you laugh with the most and you have the best time going to concerts. And that might, that doesn't have to be the same person that you speak to about your aspirations. So it's kind of like taking that responsibility. Again, that word's probably going to come up a lot of like the relationships that you want and when you want them. And I do think it can be something where we are maybe too quick to push people away that aren't in line with our current goals instead of seeing the value of like the diversity of relationships and the diversity of conversations. And another thing that I would say is like, let your brain again, do the work of like, what do I have to learn from this person? Because maybe on the surface level, I'm more financially successful or whatever it might be. But like, like seeing every person as having value is a skill that you can take on. And when you have that skill, guess what you create? value everywhere, interesting conversation everywhere, lessons everywhere. And to me, that's the way more powerful than just removing people from your life because they don't have the same goals as you. I will add a caveat, which is there have been one or two people in my life where I've been like, you know what? I genuinely don't enjoy our conversations anymore. I don't know if we were ever really that great friends or we just used to go drinking together or whatever it might be. Like I still wish you the best, but I'm not going to pick up the phone that much or if ever. What is something that is important when it comes to rest? Because, uh, you know, in, in, in this discussion is that, you know, there's some friends that you just enjoy having fun with and there's value in that. But you mentioned, you know, like playtime and rest. And we're not meant to just be a bundle of goals and productive all the time. So what is the significance of rest and what does that look like? I want to start with what it looks like. When you are scrolling through Instagram or TikTok, you think that you aren't doing anything because you're not working. But what you are, what your brain is still having to do is process a lot of visuals, a lot of sounds, and a lot of data and information. It's like the opposite of rest. It's like more tiring. So I think it's really important to just acknowledge that that isn't rest <laughs> and it's still fine to do it, but definitely don't bundle it in the, in the rest thing. Like literally sometimes I think resting is lying there with my eyes closed doing nothing. Like you say, going for a walk or doing yoga, but even like it can literally be like, there's so much juice sometimes in just literally switching everything off and like daydreaming for 10 minutes, breathing, like whatever it might be. Think about your brain and the fact it has to compute information. A rest is gonna be the minimum information it computes. I will do like a 20 minute nap. I will, I have like binaural beats on YouTube or like a hypnosis or something. And I will go and just do like a 20 minute, like I'm literally on purpose helping my brain switch off more. So I really encourage that kind of thing too. And another one that I will throw out if you only have a few minutes, like three minutes, Sometimes I will do something like just play a song that I love that I know takes my mind away from all the busy and all the to-do list and all of that stuff and just gets me into my body. I can still close my eyes and just be with just my sound instead of sound, sight, smell, you know, all the things. So that might be one that's really useful for people that are already busy. Now, the value of rest is it's kind of like, even if we think about going to the gym, right? 
Say you want to build arm muscles. No one's going to build arm muscles for eight hours every day. That's not the way to build arm muscle. The actual growth of our muscle happens in the rest period. Even a baby, a baby grows when it's sleeping. So what does that tell us about the value of rest? It's like literally when we grow, it's when we have time to absorb and implement like mentally into our brain, like it's a computer, the information that we are constantly digesting. And if we are just constantly bombarding our brain with more information, it's kind of like only going to get surface level and then we're not even going to remember it and we're definitely not going to implement it and it's not going to do anything with our lives. It's just really about understanding that your brain is this supercomputer and not running it down to the ground because we're not robots. I think rest is the most important and underutilized and simple free tool simply because we are never taught the value of it. But to me, I don't like to say this because I don't want us to think of everything as is this productive or not, but it is how we're taught to value things. So we'll go for it. Rest is as productive as doing. There is always going to be a diminishing point of returns for how much you do something and how much time you give something and how much information you consume. As a society, we are going so far over it. That rest is going to be what keeps you on the right side of the bell curve. For me, I've always got projects going on and taking the time to rest is one of the hardest things to do because I'm always thinking in the back of my mind of what I should be doing or what I could be doing. But there is, I mean, a couple of days a week, I have to just say no screen time, just turn it off and I'll read a book. And my intuition is saying, but I've got this to-do list. I've got to get all of this stuff done. But what happens every time I do that, then the next day I wake up even earlier than usual. And I am the most productive in the first two hours of that day after I have taken that rest. But it's still hard for me to rest. Yeah, only because of like how we as a society have been taught about rest. But I do think change is coming. And exactly like what you're saying, I don't even know if you know that I do this. I have a mastermind called the 15 hour work week. And it's this whole principle of in order to optimize our time and perform the best in our work, we actually need to be resting a lot more and playing a lot more and have a lot less time at the bench or the desk, whatever you want to call it. Because our brain, like I want you to think about this. There's so many things that we do on the to-do list that can be replaced by robots. Like the reason why you are so brilliant is not because you like reply to an email, you know, you do these to-do list items. It's because of what your brain is able to put together and create. That's its most important function. And when we are doing, 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 it's the opposite of creating and thinking and thoughtfulness, which is where our brilliance is. I just think of it like if something could be automated, then it's not as important as your rest. And what we've done as a society is build a culture around celebrating doing lots. Even if those lots of doings aren't actually needle movers, they're not super relevant, they're not creative. And I think that's the shift I'm hoping to be part of and I'm hoping to see in the world is more like understanding that it's not about how many things we do, it's about the quality of what we do that only we are capable of doing. Like I can automate emails. Yeah, I love that you say that about the emails because I think sometimes, you know, we jump on and then we're deleting and reading, but nothing's done. You don't really feel, you don't feel good. (laughs) You don't really feel like you've done anything. 
I would be interested in knowing what you're doing with, with your time work because I noticed that for emails, what I have to do is just say, I am going to look at them and I schedule it because mm -hmm. if I don't schedule it, then that means when I'm bored, I just scroll and I look and I'm not even that thoughtful and my replies are looking and it's taking away time. But when I say, okay, I'm setting aside this hour to respond to emails and to send them out, then it's just has made my life so much easier. Yes, I love that. And also I have autoresponders on everything. So on, on one of my emails, it says, I only check this inbox once a week. If you want something else, you can contact this other email address, which is my team. I really don't respond to people's emails super fast because, and I can tell you this from my, when I worked in corporate, if coming to you and asking a question is quicker for someone than them figuring it out themselves, they are going to become dependent on you to answer all of their questions when they are probably very capable of figuring it out themselves. And then not only do they figure things out themselves, they also build the skill of resourcefulness. And I think it's so easy to just ask someone a question and for them to give you the answer instead of going to figure it out. So let's say for you, for example, if a student wanted to know, like they've read one, one book and they're like, I'm looking for other books like this, they could email you and you could be like, yeah, here are three other ones. They could also probably go find them by themselves. Like, I don't know if that's like a common thing that you would get, but it's like so often we are taught to ask other people instead of figure things out for ourselves and over email. I love what you're saying because you're really talking about the intentionality, like taking a moment to look at and organize your day and your activities and the intention behind all of them. Because I think the reason why we would get caught up in something that's automated like emails is because we're not sitting back and asking those questions. Since you are doing a podcast, I'm just curious, and we're doing a podcast right now, what have you found as far as that medium for your teaching and for your skills and for your coaching? Yeah, so I started my podcast because at the time I had been experiencing a lot of panic attacks. So that was where it originally started. It was about anxiety. The information that I was finding out about our brain and how we evolved and how it all made sense and that there was nothing really out there at the time explaining it in a way that's like, you are not broken there's nothing wrong with you. Here's the statistics. Everyone experiences anxiety, basically. But I was working in a startup, which meant I didn't have time to take on more clients. I was like, I just want this information to get out there. So that was why I started the podcast when I did. Now in 2019, September 2019, two years ago, we closed the startup and I went full in on my coaching business. And what was amazing then, what was that I didn't know when I started the podcast was I built up so much demand of people to work with me so that it was really beneficial. Really, the point of the podcast is to just give access to a lot of people, busy people, because my episodes tend to be around 10, 15 minutes, like short, actionable steps, information about our brain, information about themselves that I think every human deserves to know in a way that's like empowering instead of there's something wrong with you and here's what you need to do about it. It's very much like, hey, this is science. Like I have one episode, an early episode called Your Lazy Brain. And it's like how our brains are wired to conserve energy. And there's no point criticizing ourselves for being lazy we're lazy by design and when you approach it from that way you problem solve so differently than when you're like I'm lazy there's something wrong with me that's really how it evolved I love the one on motivation I think that's the one that I started listening to and you're right the 10-15 minutes it's like I, it's just perfect well that thing about the the lazy brain I um <laughs> I realized this when I was pregnant and then postpartum there's all these jokes about women you know like having mom brain or pregnancy brain or whatnot and then the science behind it is is kind of like what you said. It's actually an economy of power because the one job that that brain has to do is to keep another being alive, which means nothing else is significant. And that's how you can all of a sudden forget where your key 
cheese or, or I don't know, just do something bizarre, be very forgetful. And it's not lazy. Like you said, it's actually this super powered activity, this brain activity that is focusing on what needs to be done in order to survive. I love that you shared that. And I think it's like more people knowing this kind of information. Why is it so hard for us to know that? Why is that not just known? Because what you'll see out there in conversation is a lot of shame and guilt and frustration versus oh, can we pause for a minute and acknowledge that our body is growing a baby and organs and all these amazing things? And can we, you know, give ourselves some credit? But when we live in this culture and the society of your value is your productivity, your value is your output and, what, and your measurable output and what we can see, we're taking away from like the diversity of roles that we have, the actual science of how clever our brains are. Like our brains are like, I really don't care that you have this deadline. I need to nap. You're pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> right like really it's like cool that you have all this to-do list but i'm literally we're gonna fall asleep so you can do it at the desk or in your bed like it knows how to take care of itself the only issue is that we have stopped listening to it and started listening to you know some guru that we've never met that's telling us that we should wake up at 5 a.m if we want to be successful i've told my students this too that when you think the best it's not the same for everybody and yeah. pay attention to that so schedule your classes around that but we make a mistake of saying everybody as though everybody could fit in the same way. I'm a morning thinker. That is when I am the strongest, but I know people who are great in the evening and I cannot do it when the sun goes down. I can't. So I don't try. I don't try. You just pay attention to how your body works and how well you think. And then you can kind of navigate your day around that. Yes. This is exactly why I called my program time hacking and not time management. I feel like time management, it like implies managing something like managing a schedule that someone else has decided is the best. Whereas hacking is where you go in and you create the system and you optimize it for yourself. And now a quick break to hear from our friends at Don't Assume Podcast. What are some assumptions people make about you? What do they assume about you because of your profession, appearance, hobbies, or tastes? And how many of those assumptions are actually wrong? My name is Dave Kimball, and I'm the host of the Don't Assume Podcast, a weekly show where my friends and I lay out all of our assumptions about one topic a week and invite in guest experts to validate or refute those assumptions. So if you want to check your own assumptions about doctors, racial division, skydiving, guns, flight attendants, or any number of other topics... Come check us out at at Don't Assume Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and find the Don't Assume Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere else you like to listen. The Don't Assume Podcast is streaming now. Back to the show. There he is, Rudy. Hey, Rudy. Hey, guys. Hey, I, um, sorry, I thought this was starting at 10. It's okay. Oh, good. good. No, no, no. Hi, it's Vicky. good. Actually, <laughs> Vicky, Rudy, Rudy, Vicky. Well, actually, Rudy, now that you're here, this is a question I think I would love to hear. I don't know. I'm going to kind of dive into Rudy's background. So Rudy is in finance, and Vicky, you were in finance. So I am very curious, what kinds of lessons or values do you have from finance that transfer over into being a life coach or that we can all learn from? Is there something there? So that yeah. Rudy can start coaching me for free. <laughs> 
<laughs> what are the finance skills? Which, which I do already, by the way. <laughs> Rudy's goal is to get me to answer a question instead of ask a question. But anyway, all right, that's, that's a whole nother thing. But what are some things that you, yeah, can take from finance that are of value for this broader picture of life coaching or just being doing well or time hacking, stuff like that? I mean, I love this question because I definitely went through a dip where I was like, I've wasted all these years in finance and um, it's not true at all. There's so much. I even did an event a few months ago called the time investment sprint. And basically it's using financial investing principles for how we think about time. Like how we're told to think about time versus money is very different. But at the end of the day, they are both assets. They are both investable. They are both, we spend time every single day. Like it literally is the same thing. So I think having that investor mindset is very powerful and interesting in how we view any asset. And that can be our time, that can be our health and what we're eating and nutrition, like all different types of coaching. Obviously my expertise is time. Essentially your career just teaches you how to think and then you get to apply that to different areas. What do you think, Rudy? It's strange because I'm almost feeling like I'm coaching myself here. While I am generous with my money, I I like to donate and I like to help out and buy dinners and do that type of stuff. I tend to be a little bit overly generous with my time. And it's kind of interesting the way that you put that into perspective. If you take the notion that your time is more valuable than your money, yet when you look at money, you're not giving it away to anybody and everybody that's out there. In fact, you know, some people are not even giving any of it at all. It definitely is going to need to take a necessary shifting of your mind and attitude to start treating your time, your literally your time being more valuable than money. It's almost an Achilles heel for me. If somebody says, hey, I need help, I will drop no matter what I'm doing. Even if I'm in the middle of something, even, even if it's a detriment to myself, I will like drop something and like go and help somebody. I don't know if that's a good way to go about living the rest of my life. Because if people just came to me and said, hey, I need $1,000 or $2,000 or even $100, I'm not going to just drop everything and give it to them. So why am I doing that with my time? Is that kind of along the lines of what you're talking about? Yeah, I love that you gave that example because I think it's so true. It can almost be expected where you have time. Not everyone thinks that you have money, but time is literally the resource that once you spend it today, like I always say time is non-refundable. You can make more money later, but you can't make more time. And I think the reason Rudy and probably like Gwen, maybe similar for you, and also this was the case for me for the longest time was, the longest time, um, was just in how we are not taught about time. At no point does anyone educate us on how to optimize our time. We're taught how to fill our weeks and fill our calendars and fill our social plans. And maybe we're taught how to be more productive in that time, but we're never thinking about time as an asset. We're never thinking about it as we can say, oh, my time is valuable, but do we really value our time? And I'm going to call people out listening to the podcast a little bit here based off of who I was. So don't think I've not been there, but do we value our time if we drop everything that we're doing for something we don't even know that's happening? Do we value our time if we spend eight hours watching Netflix? Do we value our time if we are scrolling on social media as we lie in bed or responding to 50 emails when we come to the office for half the day or whatever it might be? Like, do we value our time? And it's okay to have this awareness now of like, huh, maybe I've not been. And then think, what do I want to think about time? How do I want to value my time? What can I give to time? Like, how do I want this relationship to be on purpose? I love that. With all of your clients, is there something, I guess I want to know, what do people want? 
When you step back and look at the big picture, so I think in our emails, I had uh, talked a little bit about Aristotle that he says the object of life is happiness, or it's also, that's the idea in Buddhism as well, but it's not happiness like pleasure. It's, he calls it an activity of the soul and that all of our actions are actually going toward that. So I'm wondering, what do you find that when people come to you, what is it that they really want? Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to say this is what every person wants. I obviously attract certain types of people and I attract high overachievers, doers, busiers, you know, people that aren't afraid to get to work. I sometimes call them procrastinating hustlers. So what my people really want is spaciousness, like to not feel like they're always dialed on. They want to be able to dial down. They want to be able to be present for their life, not thinking, not in conversation with a friend, thinking about the email that they forgot to send, not writing an email, thinking about the friend that they've not seen. Like really, how can we slow our brains down and stop over consuming and over stocking them with so much information that we're like how the fuck is it September like what I like blinked didn't we just get into a pandemic where is the time going like really I would say that's what it is it's about slowing down time feeling like you have plenty of time and being present in that time that's definitely what my people want are you, uh, you taking on new clients? Because I could definitely use you. Because uh, I mean, it's so funny that the way that you just described what the people are coming to you for is exactly what I suffer from. I'm literally typing an email on a matter and I'm thinking about the three other emails that I didn't send. This kind of ties into Gwen a little bit of our, and I know anxiety, dealing with anxiety is also something that you do, Vicky, but talked with uh, Dr. Solomon about anxiety and we came up with like to-do lists, right? Like how some people deal with all the things that they have to juggle in their day. They write down all the things they have to do. Vicki, I'm curious, what are some easy kind of hacks that you have for people to be more present? Is it to-do lists? Is it turning off uh, the phone? Is it is it setting a timer on Instagram that pops up and says you've spent your 10 minutes today? I mean, what are some really easy hacks you're willing to give away and of course, yeah. don't give away too much because we definitely want you to get more clients, and, including <laughs> possibly myself. Rudy, yes. I want to challenge you that what she says, you're going to try. Look, I need, I need a lot of help. <laughs> Rudy I'm, is the epitome of multitasker, well, always well, doing that. His brain is always on. That is going to be part two of, of my next question. Um, okay. I'll let her answer about the hacks first. And then I do want to talk about multitasking and I, and I want to talk about approaches to it and the philosophy to it because I've convinced myself that you can multitask in certain scenarios, but I'd like to hear her thoughts first. So we'll definitely speak about multitasking afterwards. I'm looking forward to that, but I'll start with, so yeah, definitely simple hacks. And it can be, I mean, I'm a big proponent of airplane mode all the time, not like, oh, for 20 minutes, it's like really detaching ourselves. Your phone is a tool for you and what we've become is a tool for our phones where we're at the beck and call. So you said, Rudy, about someone can call you saying, you know, I need you, but are we really respecting our time if we're constantly distracted by something anyway? Like literally, like Gwen said about on purpose checking emails. So that's like a really simple hack that people find very challenging that's going to give one of the biggest returns. But what I also wanted to think about, and this might go into multitasking a little bit, but and my latest podcast episode speaks about this, how to have a successful week. And this is what we do inside my paid program is on a Monday every week, instead of writing a long to-do list of 50 things, which listen, a to-do list is step one from it's better than it all being in your head. But 
Like to-do lists are cheap. Everything on there is cheap. It costs nothing to put on, costs nothing to ignore, costs, costs nothing to take off. What I have my clients do is a little bit more effort upfront to make the rest of the week easier. So every Monday, instead of the to-do list for the week or Sunday night, whatever it is, we focus on like what is going to make this week a successful week, make it simple, make it clean, make it measurable, cap it at three things. You get another week next week. Three things are going to make this week successful. That could be creating a client. That could be launching a podcast. That could be finishing your book or a presentation. And then the second thing is what's one thing that I've been putting off I'm going to get done this week? One thing. And I want you to to notice how easy I am making it to be successful and to create a successful week and to follow through on things. When our brains go to, and a lot of my people are like, I have 20 things I need to do today. Then you are immediately setting yourself up for anxiety and failure. And 20 things is 20 decisions. It's actually more like a hundred decisions. When should I do it? How long should I do it? I'm going to jump from A to B. I'm going to do C and D together. E is going to take too long. So I'm going to skip over that. Even the decisions before you're even doing is a lot for the brain. And the third thing, the third step to what's going to make the successful week and make it measurable. What's one thing I'm committed to getting done that I've been putting off is to write down a stream of thoughts that you will think when you've done it. So it could be, for example, wow, that wasn't even that hard. I can do, or I can do hard things, or this has been so great, or I can do, you know, like whatever it is, like what are 10 sentences that you will allow yourself to think when you've achieved it? And I will tell you, even this week, like this is common occurrence. Someone in my program was like, wow, I was going to record, I think she was going to do like 12 podcast episodes, something crazy. She was like, I gave myself Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday to do them. I answered these three questions and I'd done them all by 10 a.m. on Monday. So it's like hyper performance and very streamlined focus. And it allows you to create a successful week. Whereas if you have a to-do list with 50 items, even if you get 40 of them done, you've ended the week failing. And then the following week, you have that 10 to add to the next 50. And you are always behind. With this process and this method, you are always ahead. And then you feel lighter, you feel better, you feel more capable. And that's just going to be what compounds your accomplishments. I got a stupid question for you. What if you do have 50 things that you need to do? What if you've put yourself into the position? I'm, I'm talking hypothetical here. I'm not talking about me. <laughs> uh, but what if, you're, what if you happen to be in a position where you're like, I have to do these 50 things this week. Yeah. I don't have a choice. Like, Because that, that happens yeah. sometimes in life. Sometimes things pop up. Sometimes things go into a weird direction. And all of a sudden, you do have 50 things to do. What do you do? So you're probably not going to like my answer. But what we tend to think is that 50 things is going to come up all the time. I will give you maybe that happens once a year where 50 things come up. But really what I'm going to encourage anyone in that situation to do is to declare time bankruptcy and to go down to zero and let it be uncomfortable. Let your, I call it sitting in the consequence, like sit in the consequence of I've taken too much on and I'm more committed to where I'm going to be in three months because I've stopped this habit of 50 things a week than I am for this week where I'm going to sit in the discomfort of not doing all those things. Because even within that, like just a prime example is you said like making yourself available for a lot of other people you are not going to have the time to do that when you operate like through my system but when you give yourself 50 to-do lists a week of course you can take on something else and something else and something else but it's like 95% of the things can actually wait and what you'll be amazed at is the amount of things that never actually needed to get done okay Vicky if Rudy uses this as an excuse to not do a podcast with me (laughs) 
You see how many of those fifty things are. see how many of those fifty things are for Gwen. Um, no, I, that, that, that concept of time bankruptcy is brilliant. I've never heard of it. I mean, obviously, working in fine, I could see. I like that. You, I could definitely see you. You are somebody this. that worked from finance because you use the word bankruptcy, and I often use BK or bankruptcy in, in different sayings or and things. And so I definitely see the financing. So all that stuff is brilliant. I want to ask a question about something that I've tooled around with mentally. And maybe if I'm just way wrong, this is great. I think I'm talking to the right person. I thought about building out a concept of smart multitasking, things that actually can be done all at the same time that don't, not, not everything that you're doing at the same time requires your full attention. For example, prior to the pandemic, I was commuting to work via public transportation. Yeah. I did not want to drive a car and write on my phone or check emails or do work or you know take a class. So I tried to multitask there. Okay, I'm going to delegate my commuting, right? I'm going to put the actual transportation part of it into somebody else's hands, i.e. a bus or a train. While I'm still commuting to work, I am going to take a class or I'm going to write my script or I'm going to write my book. That was the kind of like task that I was thinking about smart multitasking. Sometimes when you're waiting in line and you've got a long line, I don't know, DMV or grocery store or something. Sure. I could sit there and be present uh, in line and just kind of take it in. Sometimes what I'll do is I'll take out my phone and I'll, uh, if I'm working on a research project, I'll, I'll do a little bit of internet research while I'm waiting in line and, you know, start, I'll put things into my Evernote files, you know, put them away for later. And those types of things that I try to do, I try to do multiple things at once. Is that crazy or is there something to smart multitasking? Like I think it really is about understanding quality versus quantity and multitasking is a decision made from quantity. Doing more is better. The more is more mindset. And there are some things like I will go for a walk and listen to a podcast while I'm walking. Not always, but I will. I like it. Sometimes I'll just go and listen to some 90s tunes just for fun as well. And sometimes I'll just go with quiet. It's not as black as white as there's a right and a wrong way. I appreciate that you spoke about smart multitasking. So you are onto the fact that you know, multitasking can come at a cost to quality. Like I'll give a really good example. I had a client during the pandemic and she's also an entrepreneur and she has kids and she was literally making, it was like, beans, lunch, and cookies with her daughter all at the same time. So that's three things in the kitchen. It's like, that should be smart multitasking, right? Except the beans burnt. And then not only did she have to get another veggie and sort out, she had to clean a burnt bean pot, which is like, it's proper elbow grease. And so just be mindful of like, what is the cost of this? And do you want to take that cost on? And I think with multitasking, we can often think there's so many benefits and I'm being efficient with my time, but like, it's just that quality versus quantity. So I think it's okay to do like low quality activities, like consuming a podcast. On the flip side, if I really like a podcast and I want to like go home and sit and make notes with it, I guarantee you I'm going to take a lot more from that podcast than I am from walking around just listening to it idly. What's the value? What's like the real purpose? Do you want to be writing books for your notes when you're online in the DMV? I, I don't know if I would, <laughs> I don't know if I would encourage that, but maybe you do have, I don't know, some social messages or plans that weekend that you can make with someone. So I would just think about it. Like you said, smart, I would think even smarter and I would think even stricter. And I would think, does the quality of this matter? And if it does, 
do I want to do it while I'm in the middle of something else? Yeah, no, thank you. I, I see the point there. I think, I think one of the major takeaways from this is I got too much shit going on, I think is basically yeah. what I'm getting from, except from this podcast. Right, right, right. Don't, don't worry. Gwen. I'm this, keeping this you, is, This is, this is an important thing. And, and I prioritize this. I, this is a fascinating topic. I talk about this a lot and I feel like maybe I'm giving out bad advice to people because a lot of people are like, Hey, how the hell do you do all the things that you do? Well, I do them. Maybe they could be better quality. Maybe I could be the world's greatest podcast host if, if I didn't have a billion other things going on. I could definitely be a better parent. I mean, who, can, who can't be a better parent? Just parenting today, it's literally impossible, I think, just because of the way our economy is and all the things that we're juggling and maybe all the things that we've, we've either taken on by choice or that are put upon us. I think it's really hard to be a parent and not multitask, especially during the pandemic when the kids were home and it's just so hard. And I don't know, I I think most of my anxiety probably comes from me taking on too many things. And I definitely got a lot to think about and and a lot of major choices that I need to make, but good is in the details is is definitely going to be in the top (laughs) of the list. That's what I was waiting for. Glad you were able to land that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, can I give, I want to give Rudy just a word of advice. And I'm wondering, Vicky, what you think about it, that the multitasking doesn't actually save you time. I just want you to, I want you to think about that, that actually, like, let's say you're in line at the grocery store or something and you put your phone away and you allow your thoughts to get lost or you people watch, you might be receptive then in that moment for some sort of creativity. And you might actually just like loosen your jaw and just like stand there. And the other thing with multitasking is what they found is that think of your brain as like a camera that whenever it has to shift, it has to refocus. So you're actually shaving off milliseconds in order for your brain to refocus. So you would get more done if you said for this 30 minutes, I am only going to do this one thing. And then 30 minutes, I'm only going to do this one other thing. And that might actually alleviate some of the anxiety. And I want to know if Vicky thinks that this was brilliant. Really quick. <laughs> there, there's one, there's, there's, there's a lot of brilliance in that. Thank Another you. thing that I've taken on recently in the pandemic, and, and I'm, I'm hoping keep Keeping my fingers crossed that the that the end goal is going to be achieved. We're going to climb Mount Whitney, which is the highest mountain in the lower 48 here in the United States. One reason why I enjoy the hiking, you can't multitask. Most of your phone doesn't work when you're on it. And your goal is to get from point A to point B safely. And that could be 14 miles, 15 miles. Next week is going to be 22 miles. It's so focused. It's very Zen for me. I'm actually very happy while I'm doing it because I can't think of anything else and I'm not focusing on my phone. And so I wish I could live more of my life like that. I do think that the phone is a big problem for me. And so I just wanted to to support what you're saying, Gwen. In those times when I can just focus on one thing, I feel a lot better and my anxiety level drops, but I'm not climbing mountains every day. So Vicky, you know, any advice you could give would be great. Yeah. yeah. So focus is part of what creates flow. And I teach something called flow on demand. And flow is known to like increase our productivity by 500%. So how can we create focus without just being on a mountain? It's all about what I teach. Yes, there's physical things that we can do. Clearing our desks so we don't see anything else. Closing out those 40 tabs and keeping one specific one open. But also, one of the things, focus is an emotion and it's driven, it's connected to our brain and what we are thinking. So my focus trigger thought is always like, I'm all in on this one thing. 
And I just like, I'm all in on this one thing. And I say it to myself. And as I'm saying it, I'm closing out things and clearing out things, which also provides a routine, which is another flow trigger, but also teaches my brain I'm about to do something important. So it's all about how can we build this focus creation on demand instead of, like you say, just being on a hike. So you, your brain creates it. You know you can create it when you're on that hike. When you do it next time, notice what you are thinking. That's going to be what one of the things me and Gwen spoke about at the beginning. Like that's going to be your blueprint to create it again. Notice what's going on in your brain. I always have a million tabs open. <laughs> But you know what? I'm this is that is something I'm gonna take away. I am just going to so I say, like here I am telling Rudy, just do one thing, but I do have several tabs open. I'm gonna try that. I'm a little bit scared to close all the tabs except for the one thing that I'm working on. Do it and let it be scary. Don't wait for things to not be scary to not do them. Don't wait for them to not be uncomfortable to do them. I call them discomfort opportunity bubbles. It's uncomfortable and that's the whole point, right? Okay. I wanted to know, just a final thoughts, if there is any truth or any value in the saying, fake it till you make it. Mm. A good um, question. She loves it, Lynn, Lynn, by the way. Yep, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Here's what I like about that question. Here's what I like about the fake it till you make it. And again, kind of adding on what we spoke about earlier with affirmations. But what I like about it is so often we tell ourselves, or oh, I can't believe that about myself until I've done it. And then we achieve something and we straight away set another goal. So what we're doing is we're spending 99% of our time in failure and not in the success of the goal. We achieve it and we jump immediately to another one. Faking it till you make it and having that attitude of, I already am a six-figure earner or seven-figure earner. I already am an amazing parent. I already am super organized, whatever it might be. Like it's allowing you to sit in the success that I promise you, one of the things that we spoke about, you are capable of anyway. 100% humans are far more capable than we realize. So I like that aspect of it. Now, what we want to be careful of is not just like what we spoke about with the affirmations, saying it and being like, yeah, I'm amazing. I'm amazing without backing it up in some way. And the way I teach this is like, it's kind of like a bicycle. You can't just cycle one side and move anywhere. Like if you are faking it and faking it and faking it, your bicycle is not going to go anywhere. You're going to fall over. Just like if you are achieving and achieving and achieving without actually allowing yourself to up-level your self-concept, your self-identity, you're also going to fall over. So what we want to do is use those of two things together. I believe that it's possible for me to, like when I created my 15 hour work week, I had to first believe it was possible, right? Otherwise I would have just come up with overworking again and again. But then I also cut one day from my week. I think I did half a day, then a day, then, you know, this is possible. And then a day, this is really possible. And then another day, this is really possible. And then my mornings, and then it was done. So fake it till you make it and back it up as you go. That's going to be the fastest way. And it can even be in little things, like say someone's looking to create five clients in their business. Are you really celebrating every single one as like, I'm already a successful business owner because I've created one client. I can, de- if I can create one, I can create two. If I can create two, I can create five. You see what I'm saying here? Yeah. Yeah. That's really great. Vicky, we'll link your website to the show notes. Other than the website, is there a way our, our social media was your social media handle? So I'm at Vicky Louise underscore, 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 because there's a few other Vicky Louises, even though I spell my name V-I-K-K-I. I also recommend the Hack Your Time podcast. And yeah, and if you go to my website, there's a really good training on how to stop wasting time, which is 
probably the best place to start. So that's right there on my homepage. Do you take clients from all over? So I'm actually based in South of France and my clients are all over the world, yes. Oh, that's great. Lovely. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for teaching us about time hacks and about affirmations, anxiety, motivation. This was just all absolutely lovely. Thank you so much. Thanks, Vicky. Thank you, guys. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to learn more about Vicky's work, check out the links in the show notes. And if you're enjoying the pod and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. If you have any questions about this episode or if you'd just like to get in touch, if you'd like to sponsor or advertise with us, we're at goodisinthedetailspod at gmail.com or Instagram, goodisinthedetailspod. Also, we have merch now, so you can get in touch with us. Are you interested in merch? If you would like to support the show, we're also on Patreon at patreon.com slash good is in the detail. That is also linked in the show notes. Okay. I hope you're enjoying the start of your fall. And until next time, bye.